0: You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you like All Things Video, I'm sure you'll enjoy my new friend, Sheila Kagill's podcast, Communicate Influence. The Communicate Influence podcast explores the obvious and less obvious issues and trends in PR, communications, and marketing. It's essential listening for anyone at the forefront of these industries. Listen at CommunicateInfluence.com, or with your favorite podcast listening app. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Alex Kruglov, co-founder and CEO of PopEn. Alex, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, James.
0: So I wanted to travel back in time a little bit because your first entrepreneurial experience came at a pretty early age, right? During your time as an undergrad at Brown, you co-founded a publication called Glimpse. What inspired you to start that business?
1: Well, I didn't, I didn't start it. A classmate of mine started it, and he—he is—he was a, a, as a as a student. He took a year off before going to college, uh, and he worked on a wine farm in Europe. Uh, he was also an amateur photographer, and he came back uh, raving about the incredible travel experience that he got the luxury of having, and lamenting the fact that lots of other people have something similar and those who don't get to experience don't really understand or appreciate the complexity and the interesting nature uh, of, of traveling around the world and doing so with backpacks and without necessarily the luxury of cash and so on. So he wanted to start a publication where kids who were studying abroad could share pictures and write ups. So you kind of create almost like a, a, a travelog type publication somewhere in the, the mix between Let's go and Vogue magazine and essentially, you know, use it as a way of uh, of 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 enticing those who were who thinking about going abroad or thinking about traveling and so on. And so that was kind of his his mission and he put a, a team together and I was one of his co-founders. My title was chief marketing officer just because everybody was chief of something back when you're <laughs> undergrad that's how it goes. And uh, I didn't know anything about marketing, but we were trying to put trying to put together a structure uh, of a business. What was really interesting is this was back in 1999 2000 and we figured out how to build a website and how to create an online publication. We figured out how to create a submission process for those who were abroad. This is obviously many years before uh, social, social networks uh, emerged. And so that even the idea of uploading a photo or uploading a, an article uh, had existed, obviously, with blogging and so on, but wasn't necessarily as structured as it is today. So it was, it was definitely a fun adventure. The publication continued for an additional eight or so years after uh, after we graduated and eventually was sold to National Geographic, but I didn't stick with it after graduation.
0: What was the hardest part about being a first-time founder?
1: We didn't know anything about anything, and the easiest part was that it, we were in college. And so as a result, we just treated it as essentially a class or as another project that you do. So that was the easiest part. The hardest part in not knowing anything about anything is that we didn't quite know what we didn't know. So we didn't know how to go about accessing the right resources, how to ask for the right advice, how to make a decision as to whether it's a for profit or a nonprofit, how to incorporate the business, how to do the accounting, how to think about cost structure, essentially anything. And interestingly enough, a year after I started, I was co-founder of that publication, I became the head of a, of, a, of, a, of a nonprofit in my college, the entrepreneurship program. And a lot of what we didn't know how to do was part of essentially what became the curriculum of that program. And that program, interestingly enough, now is an official school program, which is with 50 million or so in funding. But at the time, we had to go around to local coffee shops and bank branches to try to raise the money to operate it.
0: Wow, what a great early experience. What was your focus uh, as part of that entrepreneurship nonprofit?
1: Well, we were trying to get uh, we were trying to get kids to, you know, we modeled it after MIT and Stanford and other places where there was a a big competition where kids write business plans, start businesses and in the end they win prizes and the prizes essentially encourage them to go ahead and start that business. And I I wasn't the founder of the nonprofit. I took it over in year three or so of its existence. But my big focus and the thing I changed about it was to expand the definition of entrepreneurship away from just tech startups to essentially any venture that the founder is leading on their own, if you will. And so as a result, uh, we had submissions from people who were starting theater companies and from people who were starting nonprofits serving the homeless in Rhode Island, Uh, and a variety of other places that were not sort of the traditional venture type startups that you would think about when you think about, you know, the MIT 50K competition or something like that.
0: Very good. So you have this experience uh, with the nonprofit and co-found the Glimpse publication, you know, was entrepreneurship always something that you were drawn to or, or what inspired you to get involved with these two different groups?
1: yeah so I moved to this country when I was uh twelve years old. I moved from the Soviet Union and immediately became the former Soviet Union because I left the Soviet Union on the day that it fell apart. so the country i'm uh, from is Ukraine, but I left the Soviet Union and then by the time I arrived in the states, it was a, a separate country called Ukraine so technically, I was a citizen of no country and so you know arriving in that sort of teenage years, for me, everything was sort of turned upside down so you know my dad, who had a PhD in computer science, was delivering furniture for $3 an hour, my mom was babysitting, I was delivering newspapers and helping clean houses on weekends. And so that, you know, that that was kind of a you know very formative experience. But the biggest part was figuring out how to become an American as quickly as possible. So we would force each other to speak English at home. And I ended up going to a school where there were no other Russian speakers, which made me learn English faster. But learning English is one thing, you know, having your 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 fingers on the pulse of what makes one an american uh is very different and for me it was all about pop culture so i became obsessed with music and i started you know subscribed to rolling stone magazine i was making playlists for everybody and then watching a lot of television uh, and learning from television how people interact with each other as well as movies and so i knew that i didn't have any creative talent so i couldn't be a rock star Uh, And so I figured, you know, what could you do on the business side of the, of that sort of performance, uh, entertainment, storytelling uh, industry? And so I had this dream from a very early age, from maybe 16 on, that that's what I wanted to do. So I'd research people like David Geffen and Barry Diller to see what they were doing and how did they become who they became. All of them had essentially started their own thing. Very few of them had kind of worked for a big company for many years and then and then sort of became the heads of those companies. They just kind of figure things out on their own. So in my in the back of my mind, I thought that that's what I was going to do. And so I, I really, really gravitated to that kind of stuff in college. Ironically, the thing that I learned in college towards the end of my time was how little I know about things. And as a part of my nonprofit, one of my board members was uh, a senior executive at McKinsey & Company, and i was really impressed by his ability to handle the board meeting and essentially help me organize a group of a dozen or so you know well respected entrepreneurs whom i couldn't you know i couldn't get them to agree on anything or couldn't even get them to listen to each other and so ironically despite my obsession with entrepreneurship my first traditional job out of college was working at mckinsey for a couple of years essentially with the mission of trying to learn as much as i can about what it actually takes to run businesses, and hopefully have my clients be entertainment companies, which of course, that didn't happen.
0: Wow, what a saga, right? So you definitely got a taste for it at an early age, and it sounds like it was part of not just the familial work ethic, but part of your process of adapting to American culture and lifestyle. And then through the college experience, you recognize, okay, well, there's some additional relationships and skills that I want to gather to help me on my path to entrepreneurship and modeling my career after these, you know, music icons who had launched their own businesses. So during your experience at McKinsey, what were the things that you learned? What what did you take away from that job?
1: The biggest thing was I learned the various shortcuts to get things done. So, you know, I worked at McKinsey, as I mentioned, I didn't serve any clients who were in the media landscape. But I did serve six different industries and five different countries, and so the biggest thing I learned was, you know, at the age of 22, 23, I got the incredible luxury and privilege of sort of going into rooms where normally it would take 15, 20 years of a career to get into rooms like that, and try to sort of follow and understand how these businesses operate. So the biggest thing I learned was that in these large, complex organizations, getting things done and getting to a decision was one of the most important skills and working closely with humans to get those humans to behave in ways that drive change is a very very complex skill that I realized very quickly that I probably did not have the interest or the wherewithal to work my way up inside of one of these large organizations to earn the right to sort of to practice that skill but that I actually had an ability and a knack for doing it from the outside. So the, the the McKinsey shortcut was that all of a sudden, as a 23-year-old, I had access to rooms that I wouldn't have otherwise have access to. And then I learned that I actually could influence people to do things in those rooms.
0: So how did you parlay that into getting your start in media and entertainment?
1: <laughs> it's actually funny. I, so I went to business school because I didn't know any better what else I was supposed to be doing after... Finishing at McKinsey, so what ended up happening is I started a a startup, and then at the same time went to business school. So I was I was commuting back and forth between L.A. and Boston. And uh, what's funny wow, you is want to be
0: a glutton for punishment, business a little school, bit on a commute and running a startup at the same time,
1: something like that. Yeah. The the funny thing was that um, so you know raising money for that for that startup it wasn't a lot, but still you know that definitely required some. Hutzpah, But the funny thing is I ended up also, in addition to all of that, I also had a summer internship at Fox Searchlight, which is an independent movie studio owned at the time by Fox and now Disney. And uh, what's funny is that I essentially just talked my way into it. And I ended up speaking to the chief operating officer of that company. And uh, it turned out, she thought I was someone else. So when I followed up with her and I was persistent in getting one of those jobs, which is not that easy to do, she didn't realize who I was until I started at the job. And by then it was too late uh, to reverse (laughs) her decision. (laughs) And then when I worked at Fox Searchlight, the actual job itself wasn't really interesting. So what I ended up doing was I created a project for myself that I made up. Uh, I said that I had to do it for business school. And in that project, I had to go and speak to every senior executive and try to uh, essentially summarize and capture what it is that uh, a studio does. And I told them that I would create a project for school and that I would also give it to them and it could be a a training ground for all other interns who work for them in the summer, which it did become. But as a result, I created these relationships with people that I still have to this day, which who otherwise, you know, my job did not require me to to interact with them in any way, shape or form.
0: Amazing. What a very clever... uh... (laughs) Way to go about it. So you spent some time at Fox Searchlight and then ultimately make your way to Hulu, where you were part of the early team and oversee the platform's content acquisition efforts. What was the state of streaming video like back in that period, kind of talking about 2008 to 2014?
1: Before Hulu, I had, you know, after I uh, produced a musical, a hip hop musical, and uh, which was uh, a success in LA. And then when we tried to move it to New York, we were told that no hip hop musical would ever succeed on Broadway. So
0: I guess they were right, huh? <laughs> uh,
1: not, not at never all. Yeah, never once would a hip hop musical <laughs> succeed on Broadway. So after that, you know, after that sort of wound itself down, I started a company that was trying to aggregate digital rights to movies and TV shows with the vision of selling them to essentially digital exhibitors. And uh, we assumed that iTunes would eventually get into video. At the time, it was only in music it took longer than we expected. And so at the time, the only things that were available were Cinema Now and Movie Link, if you remember those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a result, we basically, we were too early. So we just didn't have a business yet. Uh, we had an idea and, and because to your point, the landscape of digital rights you know, wasn't there yet. As a result, we you know, the business ended up having to fold. And I've worked briefly at, at, uh, at Sony Pictures uh, after that. So when we started at Hulu, what was available online was youtube and youtube at the time was specializing in a lot of pirated video because that hadn't yet been properly regulated there was a lawsuit with viacom with youtube and there was a great fear amongst media companies of youtube that youtube would essentially uh, supplant them and not compensate anybody properly for the rights to their content and then there were websites so abc.com nbc.com fox.com cbs.com all had websites with video available in them in a reasonably clunky player. Some were better than others. And so when Hulu launched, Hulu was really the only place uh, where people could watch premium videos, so television shows and movies, online for free, because at the time Hulu was entirely ad-supported. Netflix hadn't yet launched its digital streaming solution at all, but launched one soon after and then a year or so later, introduced a separate subscription offering just for streaming video.
0: Okay, so you have these players at the time, most of which were AVOD, right? And you had YouTube as the early foray into social video, and then you had things like, you know, Sony Crackle, but not much else existed from a subscription standpoint. Obviously, Netflix was dipping its toe in the water, but people kind of thought they were crazy, right? Like, you have this very successful DVD by mail business, and you're just gonna walk away from that and, and try to put premium content on the internet, didn't seem like it was ever gonna work.
1: Initially, it was free. So Netflix was, in retrospect, what they did was brilliant and they offered the streaming video part for free in addition to your DVD subscription. So they took their time to make their streaming library be any good. Initially, it was it was mostly stuff that you didn't really care about. But because it was free, and on the Netflix proper, you could get anything. You know, They trained the user to expect that there's not going to be a lot of stuff there, but that's kind of okay. And uh, after they did a deal with a company called Stars, where they were able to get, it was one of probably one of the best deals ever made and one of the worst deals ever made, depending on which side you're, you're looking at that particular deal. Uh, they, for $30 million, they were able to get essentially first run premium movies from Disney and Sony available on Netflix. And once they did that deal, they realized that there was enough there There that they separated the subscription video service for streaming video and for DVD. At the time, uh, they actually renamed the DVD business something else. They called it Quickster. That was a dumb decision that they reversed quickly, but it was a series of very, very thoughtful steps on their end. But subscription video, what we now think of as SVOD, Netflix was really the first service uh, that offered it. Everyone else was uh, ad-supported, including Hulu. And Hulu followed. It took an extra year or so for Hulu to launch its uh, subscription service.
0: Yeah. So Hulu was really, you know, Disney, Fox, and NBC Universal's response to the Netflix challenge. But experimenting early on with more of that ad-supported model, and then moving towards more of a hybrid model, which is really what they have today. Right. They have a subscription tier at a lower price point where you're still gonna be serve some ads, and then you have a all-you-can-eat model where you pay more, but you know you have an ad-free experience. So what informed that change in the business model and ultimately the decision to land on kind of that hybrid approach?
1: This might be a little boring, but but initially, when Hulu was founded, Disney was not a part of it. It was just Fox and NBC. Initially, when Hulu was founded, it wasn't thinking about Netflix at all. Netflix really didn't exist. It was just a DVD service. At the time, all it was thinking about was ad-supported video, and piracy. Really not even ad-supported video, but piracy. The majority of video consumption at the time was via pirated sites like Mininova,
0: Pirate Bay, and a the bunch mortgage, of others. Lockers, yeah, torrents, etc. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so at the time, the concept was, hey, we'll make it free and we'll figure out a business model. And also that they assumed that nobody would ever go to uh, newco.com. you know, That was the original name, or hulu.com. The assumption was that people would only consume it via an embedded player on other places. So at the time, the focus was, let's put our streaming video player on MySpace, on Yahoo, on AOL, and other places, and people will watch video there. And then we'll have a destination, but nobody will ever go to it. So that was the original premise. So the the business plan said that Hulu will be the largest premium ad video network in the history of the world. That was the concept. That's all it was. And then things ended up happening very differently than what they originally expected with the destination site getting a significant amount of traffic and user usage. And then Disney joining. And so all of a sudden there were three major partners and also a significant onboarding of content that was not from one of the media partners. So a year or two in is when we decided to launch a subscription business. Because we figured, hey, if we have a dual revenue stream, then we can do a lot better than Netflix. Uh, Things didn't quite work out in the way that at the time that the the thesis anticipated, because there was just a lot of messiness associated with having a free ad supported site and a subscription site, which still had ads. So the challenge, and this is something you you learn a lot about when you start your own business, is that complexity in offering is something that users don't like. What Netflix did so brilliantly was there's one thing, and you pay $7.99 a month for it, and that's all it is. And you don't have to think about anything else. Later on, there there were some additional incremental pricing tiers, but for the most part, to this day, Netflix just offers one thing, and that's what you pay for, and it's brilliant, and it just works. Eventually, Hulu ended up getting rid of its free service altogether, and today it's offering exactly what you're saying, which is a combination of a reduced subscription price with ads as well as a subscription price without ads.
0: First of all, it's fascinating to hear some of the history and some of the inside baseball that most of us probably don't understand about Hulu in the early days, but it's also it strikes me that it was a pretty enlightened idea at the time, right? You think back in 2008 and trying to build a business where we're saying the best response to pirated content all over the internet on these storage sites, torrents and ultimately YouTube is to make it easy and fairly priced for users to access that content, right? I mean, Viacom is in the midst of a $100 million lawsuit and Fox and NBC Universal say, well, you know, rather than trying to play the whack-a-mole game, let's get the content out there, let's monetize it as best we can, and we'll kind of evolve and figure out the business model as we go along.
1: That's right. It's an example of great leadership from visionaries and uh, a small group of people who happen to be very senior that embrace an idea. And I can tell you, having been in, in the trenches of it for you know some time, there was a ton of resistance from many, many people within each of those companies, and later Disney, who were violently against the idea of Hulu because they felt very strongly that it interfered with their day-to-day business. And because they were measured based on the performance of their day-to-day business, they, uh, they felt that Hulu was nothing but a negative. And it really took significant leadership and restructuring of, uh, of compensation structures and a variety of other things to make it happen, which is not unlike the decision that Disney took more recently with launching Disney+, Plus, where in order for it to happen, many, many, many things had to be rejiggered and many executives had to be told that what you used to be doing is no longer what you're doing and what used to be your incentives are no longer your incentives. It really takes leadership to be able to do that. Uh, And not at all a knock on Viacom and others, but absolutely. At the time, there were some senior leaders at NBC and Fox who made those decisions. And coincidentally, when those individuals left, Hulu had some significant struggles with its owners.
0: So let's fast forward a little bit to today, right? Over a decade later. And like you said, the streaming wars have intensified. The landscape has, has shifted significantly. Disney ends up acquiring Fox. And, and with that, then owned two thirds of, of Hulu, buys out NBC Universal. NBC is gearing up to launch Peacock, which will be an ad supported streaming service. You have Disney Plus, you have ESPN. Uh, so Disney is kind of the triple threat from a sports family and entertainment, the, the big brand Disney names to Hulu, which is kind of the premium television, maybe a little bit more edgy and adult. And you know, we're recording this on the last day, March 31st, gazing ahead a week or so to the launch of Quibi, which will be one of the other new entrants on the scene. What, what is your evaluation of all the different players at this moment?
1: There's room. There's room for multiple players. And there is a, especially now when people are spending more time at home than they ever have. People are seeking different solutions, but obviously over time, there's only so much that users can pay for. So the ability to attract a user is an important part of a subscription offering, but the much harder thing and the thing that fewer people talk about is the ability to retain that user. And I think in general, uh, what you have with Netflix is it's it's become a baseline service. So the assumption is that if you subscribe to a streaming video offering, chances are you're subscribed to Netflix. The other services are very likely to experience the in and out uh, model. So Disney uh, may be something very similar for anybody who has kids and or people who just love Marvel and Star Wars, similar to Netflix in terms of it being a baseline service. But for many other services, people are very likely to subscribe as long as, as, long as they keep consuming it. And if they're not uh, they'll very likely unsubscribe because it's very easy to do so. So as a result, you're seeing a lot of lengthy free trials. You're seeing a lot of offerings where people are encouraged to subscribe for a full year because the, the people who are offering these services are very mindful of the fact that they have to earn the right to keep a user. And keeping a user is quite tricky. The bigger impact is on the traditional cable subscription bundles or MVPD bundles. Where the very likely outcome is that they will be the ones hit. So it's not so much that you don't there there isn't enough room for a combination of HBO now, Peacock, Netflix, Hulu, and so on, Disney. It's more that their chances are that people are more likely to unsubscribe from existing offerings, especially today when they're no longer sports on TV. You know, in reality, people can only spend are only willing to spend so much, and the value exchange is the big thing. So uh, just about nobody thinks about paying for Amazon's video service, because what you pay for is free shipping on toilet paper, especially now you really need that toilet paper to arrive the next day if they have it. And then you oh, by the way, you also get some great video, which keeps you as a subscriber for longer. Same with you know Apple TV Plus, you're paying for something else, you're paying for the device. These services are not direct one-on-one mappings on top of each other. They're kind of, each of them has a unique offering and uh, I actually uh, wrote an article about it uh, a couple months ago with a gentleman named Matthew Ball who thinks a lot about this kind of stuff as well.
0: Yeah, and it strikes me that you know so many of these premium subscription services try to attack the issue of you know user acquisition primarily through premium content, right original programming and then they try to lean more towards retention by leveraging library content or, yes. or you know older programming. Uh, which has been a model that works really well for Netflix, which kind of has become the basic cable equivalent now. But for specialty programming or niche programming or that must-see hit TV show uh, that's only available on a single platform that's tending to drive you know that spiky user behavior where people pop in and out based on what they want to watch.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's a, That's a good summary.
0: So after leaving Hulu in 2014, you launched Popin, which started as an interactive live video platform for creators and entertainment studios, but ultimately you pivoted to an app that essentially creates virtual game nights. So what gave you the idea for the business and how did that start to evolve over time?
1: Yeah, so the original business was was called something else. And the, the idea there was I was getting more and more frustrated towards the end of my time at Hulu in that. We were starting to compete very directly with not just Netflix and Amazon, but also HBO and Showtime and uh, and some of our owners uh, when it came to competing for both new television shows that we were greenlighting, as well as acquiring library television shows. And I felt strongly that a new paradigm was going to emerge where the storytellers We're going to take advantage of the fact that they are creating something to be consumed on devices that are more powerful than just the traditional one way television devices. And so I wanted to lean into that and to try to create an environment where creative people could innovate. And so at the time, live was just getting going. And so we felt that if we could try to come up with a different way of changing the way live streaming might work and make it much more participatory and interactive, that could be a step forward into the ultimate vision uh, that I thought was inevitable, which was one where people were going to engage and interact with content in much less passive ways than they had historically. And I also felt that neither Hulu nor Netflix nor Amazon was going to make meaningful strides there because they were too early in the traditional competitive environment of premium long-form video. You know, Netflix uh, Netflix's goal was to become HBO faster than HBO could become them. and then Netflix became HBO, and then it just kind of decided that that's, that's kind of good enough. And so essentially, you know, if, if somebody fell asleep, uh, or went into a coma right around the time The Sopranos started and woke up in 2014, 15, 16, or even 20, and would watch any television show now, a Netflix show, an Amazon show, a Hulu show, it wouldn't surprise them. They would be impressed, but it would kind of look like the television that they're familiar with. And I, and I kind of thought that that would have to change. So that was the premise behind uh, what we originally started. And the reality was that similar to the other company that I had started, we were a little bit too early. The vision sort of made sense, but the user base wasn't with us and there was just far too much for them to already watch and engage with via the traditional uh, channels. So we were able to get a bunch of media companies and creators to try it, but we never got to a scale that we thought was interesting enough to build a real business out of, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is a tough thing to do as an entrepreneur, right? To recognize, okay, there's a ceiling here, right? That we've we've found the limit to the potential of this idea. There's inertia from traditional user behavior that's just too difficult to change. But maybe there's some other behavior that we can leverage. And now we have a new idea. Let's head in that direction. Or, you know, let's at least experiment and see what happens. So... Where did the idea for creating virtual game nights come from? And you know, you, you talk a lot about helping to combat the loneliness epidemic, which is more prevalent now than ever. What was the inspiration, and how did you say, "Hey, let's get started"?
1: Yeah, so I'll tell you that I'll tell you that story, and then the other thing that I that I want to sort of immediately preview is that. A lot of things have changed over the last three or four weeks uh, since the pandemic uh, hit us. So so, uh, a year and a half or so ago, when we were deciding that we were not going to continue with uh, the solution that we had in market, this live streaming platform called SmileTime, we were trying to figure out what do we do really, really, really well? When do we see magic? And is there a way to bottle up that magic and essentially create a way for that magic to self-replicate on its own without a lot of hand-holding? Because you know, one of the things that we found is whenever great stuff was happening, we were effectively acting as if we were a production company rather than a technology solution. And we didn't want to be a production company. Uh, that wasn't what we set out to do. and so the, But the magic that we had witnessed on Smile Time was when strangers, people who didn't already know each other, ended up on video together in a group video kind of a Brady Bunch style grid, you know, which a lot of us now know because so many of us are on Zoom calls all the time. And they would, you know, it wasn't a business meeting, right? It wasn't a conference call, but there were people together on video jamming over something that unified them, whether it was a shared passion or shared interest or something that they were doing together. And we saw these moments you know they were inspired by improvising comedians, doing crowd work. They were inspired by you know great musicians that got people together. There were a variety of, of, of times that we've sort of witnessed it, and it was magical. and it was really, really special, but it required with, with our previous platform, it required a lot of pieces to come together. It required uh, a really you know a really talented creator. It required them to have a format. It required marketing. It required you know people to show up on time. Require uh, required the people who were showing up on time to kind of raise their hand and ask to be invited on video, all of these sort of complex elements that were very difficult to replicate. And so as a founding team, we sort of got together and tried to think about where do we see in, in the real world, so forget digital, in the real world, when and where do we see environments where strangers start jamming and engaging with other strangers without it being weird? And we were thinking about you know, a local bar. Uh, just kind of hanging around the bar. The problem there was that the lubricant was alcohol and that was not something that we could replicate digitally. But then we were thinking about trivia night at, at a bar uh, on a, like a Thursday trivia night where people would just you know split up into teams and and really get into it with each other even though they didn't necessarily know each other. Uh and then we were thinking about game night at a friend's house where you know you are somebody's new boyfriend And you don't know anybody, and how all of a sudden you're welcomed if you're really good at charades or if you're really good at poker. We then figured out that we're already really, really good at real time group video. And we also have a unique solution where we can combine group video with unlimited audiences who are effectively in the same virtual room at the same time who are not on video, which is kind of unique to us. Well, what if we rejiggered our entire platform to combine gameplay? with group video into one. And where we seeded it with the kinds of games where seeing the other people's faces made the gameplay significantly better. So games that include bluffing, uh, games that really require human-to-human interaction. And what if we specifically focused on group games where there was effectively real-time social pressure to behave well, rather than one-on-one games where there were all kinds of risks associated with uh, harassment and the challenges that digital platforms are known for. So that was really the, the the concept behind pop-in where the game is a lubricant to create an environment where whether you're an introvert or whether you're an extrovert, whether you're fluent in English or whether you speak with an accent, whether you really know how to play the game well or not, the gameplay itself creates an environment where humans can interact with other humans, for what feels like the purpose of the gameplay. But in reality, over time, they get to know each other and actually build lifelong friendships. And so that was the premise behind the launch of Pop-In.
0: Very clever. And let's talk about how it's been impacted over the last month or so. As we've you know hit this global health crisis, people are stuck at home, you know, looking for alternatives, ways to connect with friends, ways to connect with other people, just to you know find some things to do.
1: So before the pandemic, we were dramatically over-indexing with people who had to be at home more than others, whether it's because they were young parents and they had kids to take care of, whether it's because they lived in lower density populated towns, uh, whether it's because they have elderly parents to take care of, or a variety of other reasons to, that they couldn't leave the house. And Pop-in was essentially their place to socialize, uh, And all of a sudden, that addressable you know user base. Of people who couldn't leave the house became everybody in the world very, very quickly. We've been overwhelmed in terms of our usage and in terms of our new users uh, and our demand. But what's also really interesting is that we're seeing incredible kindness and inclusivity and sharing and willingness to help. So people have raised money for those who were ill. People uh, welcome new users from around the world, and all of a sudden you're seeing a friendship between people from Latvia in Egypt and uh, rural North Carolina and Prince Edward Island. You're seeing these interactions between an LGBTQ author and an older gentleman from Oklahoma who immediately bought her new book, uh, where you just wouldn't think those experiences would necessarily happen. What we're also seeing is that creative people who usually will work on stage or on a cruise ship, or on television, because everybody's stuck at home, they're actually taking advantage of of platforms like ours to perform and to do crowd work, uh, which is which is a really interesting kind of alternative to to what they had been doing in the real world. So you know we've had to operate effectively with a bunker-like mentality, where we're constantly revising our feature and priority list to adapt to the fact that our addressable market has changed, the the psychographics and the dynamics of our addressable markets has changed. So for example, a feature that we are prioritizing aggressively and will probably be out by the time this podcast is out is what we call play with your mom feature. The idea here is to essentially create private unlisted games where you can invite your friends and family to play with you, existing friends and family, not people you meet on the app. Uh, and where you can play undisturbed. So initially, we had prioritized this feature for members of the of the military who are serving abroad, for, as well as for you know the casual uh, once a month you know fraternity uh, brothers or sorority sisters getting back together that kind of a thing. And now there are literally grandparents who live a few blocks away from their grandkids who can't see them in person, and this is an opportunity for them to engage. And as we all know, if you are on Zoom video or FaceTime. With your grandparents, uh, you get bored of them in about fifteen seconds. Whereas if you're playing a fun game together, all of a sudden you have a reason to you know to actually be on video and interact.
0: What an incredible mission, and it's it's great to see that you know you had this idea, you wanted to find ways for people to interact in a digital format and, and recreate these experiences that we have in the real world. And now we need it more than ever. So it's, it's great that technology can help facilitate some of these interactions and lead to new friendships or lead to a way to connect with people when normally you'd be isolated.
1: It's very humbling because the other incredible gift that we have is that as founders, we literally interact with our users directly, you know, on video, face-to-face every single day. So we have a, f- a real time focus group that's built in and live at all times. My username on Popin is Alex and there's a little intercom message that comes in. Uh, intercom is our, our in-app chat solution. So it's a little message that comes in for me that kind of tells you how to play. So as a result, a lot of people know me personally inside the app and, and then occasionally when there's an author or an actor or somebody else that we wanna feature, sometimes I'm the one hosting them. And so, you know, I'm kind of getting real time tech support questions as well as, uh, you know, very direct feedback uh, about the app all the time in real time. And what's really interesting is that we're getting consistent feedback about what Pop In means to people, you know, where it fits in their lives. And um, it's incredible to see how valuable the social interactions are and how valuable the community uh, has become, where people are essentially telling us that. You know, some sometimes in their in their day to day lives they have difficulties, and pop in is a place where they get support and where they have other people who make them feel better about themselves and who encourage them and who uplift them uh, in a way. Before the virus, you know, we were getting pictures occasionally sent to us of people who met on the app and then would get together in person, drive or fly. Uh, across the country or across the world wow. uh, to get together. It's really, really heartening stuff that makes you feel very warm inside. It gives you a real mission as to why we're doing this thing.
0: That's amazing. And what does the business model look like? How do you monetize?
1: The, the core business model is around microtransactions. So think about it as the same way that free to play games uh, make money, uh, where unlike traditional free to play games, we don't have any Closed walls. So there's no, you never have to pay for anything that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get for free. But there are certain features that you can get that are beautification features and what we call perks that can make the gameplay a little bit more fun, uh, which you can choose to purchase. What we are starting to prioritize in the coming weeks, and this is not something we've been public about, so I guess I'm saying it publicly for the first time. What we're prioritizing is the ability for creators to be able to to raise capital directly in the app, so whether it's to get tipped in a, in a currency or to potentially charge small entry fees uh, for specific games that they're hosting. And we're also thinking about creating an opportunity for charities to hold fundraisers in the app where they could do things like you know, hey, you know for for playing uh, hearts with Matt Damon, you know, we'll we'll solicit donations and there'll be up to six people who get to play with. Uh, with him or something like that. So we're trying to figure out solutions that, you know, as people who are not able to generate income in traditional ways, we're trying to find ways to supplement for them as quickly as possible and essentially creating an experience economy, if that makes sense. And, and, and a part of that also is to add activities that are game-like in nature, but are not necessarily traditional games to allow people to innovate and be more creative on top of just traditional games.
0: Hmm. What do you mean by that? Can you give us an example?
1: Uh, An example of that would be like a yoga class or a watch party or a DJ session where people can can sort of have a turntable FM-like experience where they're kind of sharing tunes and stuff like that. Essentially ways for people who are creative to express themselves. I'll give you an example of that. There's a a host named Kevin Winston who specializes in essentially in holding parties around the LA area in bars and uh, pool parties and stuff like that. Obviously, that's not happening. And so he reached out and he said, hey, I want to host a happy hour. So he called it a quarantini. And he he played one of our existing games, which is called Majority Rules. And the premise of Majority Rules is you uh you ask questions with multiple choice answers so think about this or that would you rather those kinds of questions mm-hmm. and what you're trying to figure out is not just what the answer is for you but also what it might be for somebody else so hey who would you rather be quarantined with you know which celebrities would you rather be quarantined with Brad Pitt Scarlett Johansson you know you you know, you, you fill in the blanks right and uh and you're trying to figure out what everyone else is going to say so he played that game but of course because he does what he does he's a party promoter he took his time playing the game. And so he really, really got people to dance with each other uh, and to rap and to sing songs. So a game that would normally last about 30 minutes, he made it last about an hour and 40 minutes. And by the end, wow. it was basically a wild dance party. And so that, so that's an example of something where the game itself was kind of beside the point <laughs> eventually. And uh, And it's not necessarily a format that makes sense for you or me to host, but for someone like Kevin... Uh, it made a lot of sense. So we want to lean into that a little bit more now that we have more people like Kevin on the app who never otherwise would have been using it because he's out every night.
0: Yeah, we'll stay tuned for some of those new features that are going to allow more creators and these artists and entertainers to to use the app to you know supplement their income or find this as a way to connect with their audiences in a meaningful way. Charities and nonprofits to raise money sounds like a whole new dimension to the social experiences that you're creating online. So very cool. Alex, what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the digital media space, what would they be?
1: I think that after this pandemic is behind us, and, and and I know that's a complicated statement, You know, what exactly does it mean for it to be behind us? And I'm not a medical professional nor am I a politician, so I'm gonna put kind of put that aside. But I think after this pandemic is behind us, there will be many ways in which people interact with media uh, that will have changed. So what I mean by that is, there will be new things that we are, we're getting used to that we were not necessarily used to before, new ways of interacting with each other, new ways of consuming, uh, new ways of creating. And things aren't just going to go back to the way they were before. Uh, there will be a lot that all of us are learning that will impact how we create media, how we consume media, and then more importantly, how we interact with each other. Some of these will be good. Some of these will be bad. I'm not, I'm not really interested in passing value judgment of them, but I think it's crucial that we all understand that things are not just going to go back in a box. So what I predict will happen is that is there will be a faster adoption curve for some newer technology solutions. For example, a friend of mine Uh, Runs a company called Within, and they're in beta with a VR-based exercise solution that I think is spectacular. So something like that I think is likely to be adopted faster than it would have been before. It might actually become a bigger part of how people work out. Same, you know, Peloton is a version of that with an expensive uh, with an expensive device. I think that from a media standpoint, those users who are younger and who are more born into a certain style of interacting with devices and interacting with media they are no longer just the young kids because there are many folks in their 30s and 40s who otherwise didn't have time to engage with new ways of interacting with media that are now used to it so a platform like PopIn it has always been you know it's always been used by people of a variety of different ages but all of a sudden it's embracing the types of users who wouldn't have considered it before Because they were too busy being out on Tinder dates or they were too busy watching Netflix and Amazon. And now there's just, there's just, you know, they get sick and tired of watching SVOD all day. And so they want to actually interact and engage with other humans. And, you know, they're doing so virtually. So I think there will be, you know, platforms like Roblox uh, will stop being known as just things that our young kids are doing. Platforms like Fortnite will make an effort to embrace older users. And we're going to start seeing more. Creativity and innovation, even in the traditional SWOT landscape. feature yeah. films are going to be hurt. You know, the, 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 the traditional windows are going to be affected because people are going to be pretty used to not going to movie theaters and they won't miss it very much. So there'll have to be new models around that. So yeah, a lot is going to change. Sports is going to change significantly. Uh, we're going to start seeing uh, sports that before used to be secondary or tertiary all of a sudden come into prominence. And that's going to be very interesting. And I think in general, humans will embrace the need to create positive experiences together much more than before, because before it used to be a luxury. And now it's something that all of us are trying to crack and solve, given the physical isolation. I, I, I heard something on a podcast that really inspired me. You know, we talk a lot about social distancing, and that's really the wrong term. The correct term is physical distancing, Uh, and if anything, we should all be embracing social togetherness much more than before, and I think we are.
0: Yeah, I think that's really powerful. We're already seeing some examples of it. You mentioned the changes to the traditional entertainment windows, some studios experimenting out of necessity right now with releasing things straight to SVOD platforms. Yes. Uh, And then, of course, you know, Netflix rolling out Netflix Party as a way to create this social togetherness viewing experience. So you're absolutely right. You can't put a lot of these things back in the box. The expectations for users have changed certainly cable television with cord cutting is accelerating live events and sports will forever be changed and you know it's really just kind of accelerating a lot of these things that are probably at the end of the day pretty beneficial for users right it's leading to a better online experience of online entertainment whenever however you want to consume it
1: less vegetable like behavior at home i think is uh, can't be a bad thing
0: yeah so one question I ask everyone who comes on the show is, if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do?
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a funny question because I am an entrepreneur and I am running a startup that's you know, reasonably young in kind of what we're doing. And we're so focused on new things that we're doing that uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm immediate, the first things that come to mind is basically what's on our feature list uh, over the next three months. Uh, so so I'm, let me try to divorce that uh, for a second. So, so it, look, I think that if if I were uh, an entrepreneur who was starting something brand new and who wasn't in my space, what I would focus on is next generation of storytelling. I think that there is a stagnation that is coming, uh, where because there's so much money being spent on traditional linear uh, storytelling, there's a small number of sellers, you know, traditional television writers and, and movie writers. And a very large number of buyers who are willing to pay a lot, all the way from Quibi to HBO to The Usual Suspects, that there there is going to be very expensive and well made crap that we're going to start seeing. Uh, and in parallel, uh, you are seeing more and more creators on platforms like TikTok and 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 popinch as well, people who grew up making games on Roblox who are just not interested in entering that. Uh, the space of uh, of what we now think of as you know forty minute uh, TV show or a ninety minute movie. So I think that there is going to be a large opportunity to create new formats for high quality, great stories that are not linear in nature, but also not the hacky choose your own adventure stuff that you know we've seen experimented in the market. That in itself isn't a thing; it's a one off. So creating new paradigms for super creative people to express themselves to me is really, really interesting. And we haven't really quite seen that yet. On the one hand, on the other hand, we're starting to see not just uh, traditional actors and television people, but athletes and others who are exploring and trying to figure something out. Uh, And I think that whatever these solutions are, absolutely will lean into building something together and into engagement where the consumer isn't just watching or isn't just consuming, they're taking part because that's how uh, anybody under the age of 25 is consuming much of of their media today. So I think that playing in that space somewhere in between video gaming and, and video and audio is really, really interesting. And I think that over the coming years, that's where many, many uh, billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars in new value will be generated.
0: Alex, where can people find out more about you and more about Popin?
1: The good news about Popin is that is also its URL, pop.in, and immediately will redirect you to a download on either iOS or, or Android. We also have an Instagram page and a Twitter page, but don't worry about those. Just go and get the app. You'll, you'll engage with uh, lots and lots of Humans and lots of fun games uh, inside of it. I also, in addition to uh, to running, occasionally I write. uh, So you can follow me on Twitter at a Kruglov, a k r u g l o v, and uh, uh, I occasionally talk about politics there too. So feel free to ignore all that stuff.
0: (laughs) Well, Alex, thanks again for coming on the show. This has been terrific to learn about your journey as an entrepreneur. Talk about the early days of uh, video streaming and and, uh, battling between the ad supported and subscription video models to experimenting with that yourself and trying to find a way to help creators and studios monetize their content in interesting ways to realizing, well, you know, there's a great opportunity to help connect people and produce these places online where we can connect in meaningful ways and and find that connection to break up the, the isolation and the loneliness. So thanks again for sharing your story and encourage everyone out there listening to check out, pop in, play a game. I've done it. It's a lot of fun and uh, can't wait to, uh, to see what, what changes come as a result of these new ways of connecting with people virtually. Thanks so much for having me, James. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.